This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Gargoyle. We here at the Word of the Week are obviously big fans of Dungeons and Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games. But that's not all we're fans of. We also like video games, too. And books. And movies. And television shows. Especially cartoon shows. Oh yes, we've been watching animated shows all of our collective lives. Of course, these days, that doesn't seem like much of a thing. What with an entire generation of 20-somethings running around convention floors screaming, Oh my glob! And I'm Pickle Rick! Wubba lubba dubba! Or whatever the heck they scream. But when we were growing up, there was an age at which cartoons were just a thing you didn't do anymore. But we didn't care. We did them anyway. And we were recently reminded of one of the cartoon shows we watched while the other high schoolers were doing sports and having proms, while we were leafing through a book and someone asked a rather innocuous question. Here's the story. One half of the Word of the Week crew purchased the other half of the Word of the Week crew a fantastic book for Christmas, Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. The book is a sort of reference book that explains every manner of idiom, phrase, fable, saying, and allusion that you might care to mention. And this particular edition, the 19th edition, is the latest in a series of releases that stretch back to 1870. Back in 1870, there was this Englishman in Norwich named Ebenezer Cobham Brewer. He'd gotten a degree in law and was ordained as a Baptist reverend. And he noticed something among both parishioners and the students he worked with at his father's school. There was a growing curiosity among people, especially those who did not have the benefit of a university education, about mostly everything. And he wanted to fix that. So he published his first book, A Guide to the Scientific Knowledge of Things Familiar. That book was pretty much what it sounded like. It contained the scientific explanations for the sorts of things people ran into every day. And it did so in a style known as catechism. Catechism is a form of instruction that presents a question and then provides an answer. If it were invented today, it would be called FAQ style. The name derives from a Greek word for oral instruction. Today, the word catechism has a religious connotation. And that's because Martin Luther, in an effort to make the Catholic Church's teachings more approachable to the laity during the Protestant Reformation, used this style to teach basic Catholic ideas. And so, Brewer wrote a book of scientific instruction for laypeople based on a simple question-and-answer format. And it covered such topics as sound, light, heat, carbonic acid gas, phosphorated hydrogen, and miscellaneous. As you can imagine, the book was a smash hit. Following the success of his guide to scientific knowledge, he decided to tackle another broad subject people wouldn't stop asking him about. Literary allusions. See, reading was becoming more and more popular and accessible. But often, contemporary books alluded to great works of past authors. Without a strong education in the classics, such references would fly over the head of the reader. And so he compiled what basically amounted to an encyclopedia of classic literary and mythological references. While he was at it, Brewer included lots of other fun little facts he thought might be of interest, like descriptions of historical events and explanations of the Roman numeral system. 
This book, too, proved immensely popular and was revised and republished several times up until 1900. Then, 50 years later, in 1953, a new version was compiled and published bearing the same name. Since then, it has been repeatedly revised and republished and remains in print. Now, the book is a great thing to flip through. We promise we're getting to the actual word of the week and monsters from fantasy games and mythology and cartoon shows from the mid-90s in a moment. Just bear with us. Now, the book is a great thing to flip through, especially if you're laid up because you've wrecked both your computer and your knee and you're spending a lot of time on the couch watching progress bars lie to you about how much time is remaining before the latest attempt to recover your operating system fails. Which is how we found ourselves flipping through said book this week and reading random passages aloud to anyone who happened to pass by or be on the phone. And we happened on one passage... Gargoyle. And when we read it aloud and mentioned the word comes from the Latin word gargium, which meant throat, we were asked if that's why the word gargoyle sounds like the word gargle. And the answer is yes. And that conversation sent us back. Man, did it ever. But it didn't send us back to the stony devil monsters that are able to stay so perfectly immobile that they are mistaken for statues in the Dungeons and Dragons monster manual. No, it sent us back to a Disney cartoon from our high school days. And considering that cartoon was part of a programming block that included the antics of the richest duck in the world having comedic Indiana Jones-style adventures in the pursuit of becoming the even richerest duck in the world, it was surprisingly dark, complex, and serious. We're talking, of course, about the Disney Afternoon and the Gargoyles cartoon show. The story of the Disney Afternoon, and of one of Disney's most acclaimed, most popular, and most complex television series ever, actually begins in the early 1980s. See, Walt Disney Studios was struggling at the time. Walt Disney had died in 1966, and his successor, his older brother, Roy O. Disney, died just five years later. The folks left in charge weren't as visionary as the Disney brothers and so there followed a long period of underperforming, lackluster films. Then, during the production of Disney's The Fox and the Hound, longtime animator Don Bluth left Disney Studios and took a dozen of Disney's top animators with him to start his own studio. In 1982, Don Bluth Productions released their first feature film, The Secret of Nim, which told of a widowed field mouse who seeks help saving her family from a colony of super-intelligent rats, who had escaped from a lab in the National Institute of Mental Health. Yeah, that's what it's about. And it was great. The book, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, was even better. Don Bluth Productions had a hit on their hands and suddenly became a major competitor in the animated film market. Meanwhile, Disney continued to struggle, and it was very nearly taken over by a predatory investor named Saul Steinberg. After they fought off the hostile takeover, Disney's investors decided new blood was needed, and they brought in three big names to turn things around. Michael Eisner from Paramount Pictures, his associate Jeffrey Katzenberg, and former Warner Brothers executive Frank Wells. Now, Disney had rejected the secret of Nim pitch, and lost out when Don Bluth made it a major success. So the new trio decided that maybe it was time to try something darker and more adult. So with that in mind, they produced the dark fantasy film The Black Cauldron to basically save the studio. And save the studio it did. Oh, 
no, wait, it flopped too, and now Disney was really in trouble. Bluth was out competing them, and they couldn't get ahead. So Eisner overturned a three-decade-old Disney policy that basically said, we're a film company, we don't do stupid cartoon shows for kids on TV, and started producing cartoon shows for kids on TV. Now, Eisner had once overseen children's television programming at ABC, and he still had friends there. Within half a year, Disney had two animated television series. The first was The Wuzzles, about a group of chimerical animal mashups led by a half-bumblebee, half-lion, and a rhinoceros monkey. We aren't making that up. We watched the show. We even had a stuffed bumble lion and rhinoki, okay? And the second was a fantasy series about magical bears protecting ancient magic from greedy humans called the Gummy Bears. Two years later, they turned the highly successful Donald Duck comic books by Carl Barks into a successful series about an elderly multi-billionaire duck stealing treasures from foreign countries for profit called DuckTales. The series moved from Saturday mornings to weekday afternoons right after school, and it became part of a two-hour block of animated Disney shows called The Disney Afternoon. And it was the great success of their television programming that helped keep Disney afloat long enough to then go through what has been called the Disney Renaissance, which started with a 1989 release of the animated feature film The Little Mermaid, and included Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. Now, the Disney Afternoon ran for many years, and shows were rotated in and out, and they were mostly standard comedic cartoon adventures. Well animated, sure, and pretty dang good. We love Darkwing Duck ourselves. But one show was not like the others, and that was thanks to the husband and wife team of Michael Reeves and Bryn Chandler Reeves. Somehow, and it's still not entirely clear how the show got produced, the Reeves managed to maintain a great deal of creative control over this series, called Gargoyles, by the way, and they even wrote the entirety of the first season themselves. Back then, that wasn't very common. And while initially the show was intended to be comedic, the end result was anything but. The show tells the story of a group of magical creatures called Gargoyles, who were once the guardians of a Scottish castle and family but they were cursed and turned into stone by powerful magic. It wasn't until the modern day when a wealthy industrialist shipped the entire castle to the heart of New York City and broke the curse that the gargoyles lived again. The show was dark. It featured complex characters, morality plays, love triangles, multifaceted villains, and a lot of death. And it was gorgeously animated. Quite frankly, it was doing serialized storytelling before anyone had ever heard of Lost or The Sopranos. And it drew heavily on Celtic and Germanic myth and on Shakespeare. It even featured an episode about King Macbeth, though it focused more on the historical king than the Shakespearean character. Of course, the idea of transplanting a European castle to the heart of New York City and it then being guarded by stone statues that come to life at night and patrol it is just a crazy fantasy, right? Just something for a television fantasy series, right? It'd never happen in real life. At, say, 99 Margaret Corbin Drive in Manhattan in New York City. Okay, the Cloisters is not actually a transplanted European castle. We admit that. That's what's at that address, by the way. 
The Cloisters is technically a part of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but it isn't physically a part of the Met. It's an owned and operated kind of thing. And the Cloisters is one of those things that people tell you you should do if you're in New York City, but very few people know what it actually is. It's hard to find. Basically, it's a museum of medieval architecture and sculpture made up of four cloisters. A cloister is just a covered walkway. Usually you see them around courtyards and abbeys and monasteries. And that's exactly where the four cloisters came from. The Cuxa, the Bonnefort, the Tree, and the Saint-Guillem cloisters were each excavated from French abbeys and monasteries of the same name, deconstructed, transported, and rebuilt in New York in 1934 by John D. Rockefeller. He then filled it with medieval art from the collection of American sculptor George Gray Barnard. Over the years, chapels and other buildings have been added around the four cloisters, and four acres of gardens now surround the museum. It was constructed to actually give the full sensory experience of being in a French abbey or monastery between the 11th and the 15th centuries. In fact, the gardens contain over 250 varieties of plants that would have been typical for the region during the medieval period, and that garden is now one of the rarest and most expensive gardens in the world. But we bring it up because it is an architectural and sculptural museum. As such, it features gargoyles. Well, actually, it features gargoyles, grotesques, and chimera, which people often lump together and collectively call gargoyles because they don't know any better. And according to some legends, the gargoyles come to life at night and protect the cloisters from would-be thieves and vandals. Although gargoyles are thought of today as magical statue monsters that come to life and kill hapless adventurers until they get smart enough to smash every winged, clawed, toothed statue they see, gargoyles are actually an architectural feature. One of three similar architectural features. And there is a very specific reason why gargoyles are called gargoyles, and why they are associated with gargling and throatiness. Actually, there are two, but we'll get to the second one in a second. First, let's talk about the architecture thing. You probably think of a gargoyle as a sculpted monster hanging off the side of a building. Specifically hanging off the side of a gothic building. Because those little monsters did indeed become very popular as part of the style of art and architecture known as gothic. Now, Gothic architecture was actually an outgrowth of an early style of architecture that rose to prominence around 1000 CE. It was a combination of Roman and Byzantine architecture and Germanic architecture. And Gothic architecture arose because everything was getting bigger. Romanesque architecture was based on masonry, on stonework, and stone is pretty danged heavy. So there's some limits about how big you can make a masonry building, and how high the ceilings can be, and so on. The problem is that masonry architecture in the Middle Ages was mainly used to construct chapels and churches. And because religion was a big thing and a major driver of art during that period, the idea of limits really bothered the architects and sculptors of the day. By the mid-1100s, masons had developed a number of very ingenious advances. First, they developed the ribbed vault. That was a vaulted ceiling supported by crisscrossing arches or ribs. The ribs distributed the weight of the masonry ceiling, and those ribs needed to be well supported. So they started to run the ribs all the way to the outside of the building and anchor them to freestanding stone piers. Those freestanding stone piers and arches supporting the ceiling from the outside of the building 
were known as flying buttresses. And those elements allowed for the construction of massive soaring chapels. And obviously, those amazing structures, grander than any that came before them, needed a suitable name. So they were named after one of the most famous Central European barbarian tribes ever to have destroyed the Roman Empire. The Goths. Seriously. The thing is, the people who named the architectural style that dominated the 12th to 15th centuries were Renaissance architects and writers in 16th century Italy. And the Renaissance saw a resurgence in appreciation for classical Roman art and architecture. And the writers and architects of the day thought the Middle Ages architecture was ugly and ostentatious. So they named it after a barbarian tribe that had destroyed Rome. And that is how Gothic architecture got its name. But Gothic architecture included Germanic elements. And among them were ugly little sculptures of hideous monsters. Germanic mythology and folklore is, and we say this with no judgment, filled with ugly, hideous, and unpleasant things. So their architecture was too. And the idea was that those ugly, hideous sculptures would serve as protectors. They would scare off evil spirits and maybe come to life and kill bad people. But here's the thing. The first of those ugly little sculptures served an actual architectural purpose. They weren't just protector spirit decorations. They were drainage spouts. Water would drain along the roofs, collect in channels, and then pour from the roof out of these stone spouts. And the water would make a gargling noise as it drained off the roof. So, the term for a drainage spout was gargoyle. And such spouts had been used in masonry by the Romans, the Greeks, and even the Egyptians. But they were often carved in fanciful faces or other shapes. However, with the Gothic architects, if they had a thing to carve, they were going to make it ugly. And that brings us around to the three conflated architectural features. Technically, to be called a gargoyle, the thing has to be a drainage spout. And the gargoyle doesn't have to be a monster face, but it can be. Now, if there's a monster sculpted onto the side of a building that isn't a drainage spout, it's called a grotesque. Unless the monster is an amalgam of animal features like a bumblebee lion or a rhinoceros monkey. Those are called chimera. Got it? Gargoyles are drainage spouts, which may also be monsters. Grotesques are fantastic monsters that aren't drains. Chimera are monsters made of animal parts that also aren't drains. Now that we have all that straight, let's talk about the first monster to be named a gargoyle. Or rather, to be named gargoyle. It's pronounced the same, but spelled G-A-R-G-O-U-I-L-L-E. And it's a French name that comes from the Greek word for throat. And it was not a statue that turned into a guardian monster. Nor was it a drain. It was a river dragon. A French river dragon. The story goes that in the swamps of Rouen, along the bank of the Seine River, there was a giant serpentine monster with a long neck, a slender snout, and eyes that shone like moonstone. And the creature could vomit forth massive quantities of water. And if you've been paying attention, you know why they named it Gargoyle. Anyway, it was doing all the things you'd expect a massive water-vomiting swamp dragon to do. It was eating people, sinking boats, and drowning farmland. 
The whole region was flooded by the thing, and the people finally begged a leader of their church, the Archbishop of Ruin, St. Romanus, to kill the thing. Romanus, being a bishop, wasn't quite sure he was up to the task. So he sought a single volunteer to go with him and... Well, we're not sure what the volunteer would do, apart from maybe helpfully getting stuck in the dragon's throat while St. Romanus ran. The point is, no one was too keen to volunteer. No one except one man. A criminal who had been sentenced to death. The criminal agreed to help St. Romanus in return for a pardon for his crimes, figuring that a trial by dragon was better than definitely being executed. So the archbishop agreed, and the two went out to confront the dragon. And honestly, that was the good part of the story, because it's a bit anticlimactic from here. The archbishop confronts the dragon and makes the sign of the cross, and the dragon is instantly tamed by the religious gesture. The archbishop then slips a leash around the dragon's neck and leads it back to town, and the people burn it to death. And you might think this sounds a lot like the St. George and the Dragon story that we told in our episode about dragons. But this one is very different. For example, a criminal got pardoned before the dragon was tamed and led to its death at the hands of the townsfolk it had been terrorizing. That little detail is the important bit. Because in France, and some other European nations, bishops held a legal power called bishop's privilege. It allowed them to pardon one condemned prisoner each year in the name of St. Romanus. And this story is the origin of that privilege, which remained a legal power until 1790. And that brings us back to where we started which is sitting on a couch, nursing our wounded knee, and reading a story about a clergyman killing a dragon in a book first written by a clergyman to describe mythological and folkloric references. And now it's time to put the book down and engage in the classic sick day activity of watching cartoons. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>